Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you'll need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Fightful Boxing Podcast. It is time, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Carlos Toro, and it's time to talk about some boxing. It's been a long, long week since Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury had their rematch, in which Tyson Fury stopped Deontay Wilder in the seventh round to become the new WBC heavyweight champion of the world. There was a lot to talk about in the aftermath of that fight. If you haven't listened to the post-show podcast where I broke down the entire, not not just the entire fight, but the entire card, the entire evening of festivities last week, be sure to head on over to Fightful.com to check that podcast out or to Fightful's MMA and Boxing YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's been a long week, as I mentioned, and maybe the the aftermath of the fight is probably j- almost just as eventful as the actual fight, which is really saying a lot, considering how monumental that night was in which Tyson Fury beat Deontay Wilder. But let's get right down into the nitty-gritty. The, the thing that everyone is talking about, and I can't believe we're even discussing this. It is, you know, it's... I want to say it's a non-story, but because of the specifics of this story, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. And I can't believe, again, I can't believe that this is a topic that is being brought up in, in boxing, especially when we have such a, a solid, solid boxing card this weekend in Frisco, Texas. But Deontay Wilder, I think you all remember Deontay Wilder's ring rug. It was, it was excellent. It was fantastic. He wore this. It's incredible full body well I maybe not full body but most of his upper body was covered in this incredible black suit he had wore a mask and the, the lights lit up led lights it was fantastic it was you know you, you saw him walk around oh, walk towards the ring with images of historical black figures historical african american figures flashing during his ring entrance it was one of the best ring entrances I can remember in a long, long time. But according to Deontay Wilder, 
That entrance, specifically what he wore on his way to the ring, was specifically why he lost the fight to Tyson Fury. I'm not making that up. The costume was what basically beat Dyson, uh, Deontay Wilder. Not not Tyson Fury. Uh, Deontay Wilder's costume beat Deontay Wilder, not Tyson Fury. In an interview with Yahoo Sports, and I'm going to read this verbatim, just so that, you know, uh, just so you can listen to Deontay's own words. And again, this is verbatim, and these are Deontay's own words, which makes this even more incredible. He referring to Tyson Fury, he didn't hurt me at all. But the simple fact is that my uniform was way too heavy for me. I didn't have no legs from the beginning of the fight. In the third round, my legs were just shot all the way through. But I'm a warrior, and people know that I'm a warrior. It could easily be told that I didn't have legs or anything. A lot of people were telling me it looked like something was wrong with you. Something was. But when you're in the rain, you have to bluff a lot of things. I tried my best to do so. I knew I didn't have the legs because of my uniform. And then he went on to say, you know, I was only able to put the uniform on for the first time the night before. But I didn't think it was going to be that heavy. It weighed 40, 40 some pounds with the helmet and all the batteries. I wanted my tribute to be great for Black History Month. I wanted to be good. And I guess I put that before anything. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack here. There, there really is. Number one, just the, just the fact that you even go as far in as to say, well, my costume, it, my costume was too heavy. You know that 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 belongs in the my, in the Hall of Fame of all-time worst boxing excuses. It's right up there with uh, Mike Tyson's, you know, I broke my back. It's final interview that he had a long time ago in the interview with Jim Gray. Which I do have to say, it not only is one of the most bizarre excuses, most bizarre things I've heard in a post-fight interview, but it is also one of the most unintentionally hilarious so I do recommend watching because it is a very funny, it's a very funny uh, excuse or a very funny way that that Mike Tyson elaborated back then. But this one, this was, this is dumb. Like this wasn't a heat of the moment type of thing. This wasn't immediately after the fight. This was a couple of days after the fight, and he had time to process. Maybe not a whole lot of time, but he had some time to process what's going on, and that's the best you can think of. Like, I get that you want to try to find some way to justify your loss. I get it. Deontay Wilder's never lost before. Sure, he's been hurt in the past, but he's never been manhandled to the extent that he was last week against Tyson Fury. And look, and I don't want to, and I don't want to, you know, defend the guy for this excuse because I'm not. But maybe even if he does believe. That the Super Bowl, even if in, in his heart of hearts, he believes that he lost because his costume was too heavy. Doesn't that, you know, it it making it, it makes it seem like Tyson Tyson Fury is not that good of a puncher. I mean, like he he only could beat me because I was only wearing a costume. My costume was way too heavy, and you say that in a way 
that almost makes it seem like you're trying to, you know, take away from Titan Fury's victory or his power or his skill set, saying that you only lost basically because your ring entrance uh, shot your legs. But it doesn't come off like it doesn't come off as Titan Fury isn't really that's that strong. It comes off as Deontay Wilder just being a sore loser. You know, it it comes it it makes him look bad. It makes him look pathetic. It makes him look weak. And I'm not discrediting, you know, I'm not taking away from Deontay as a boxer. But you can't say those types of things and expect people to be on your side well you know this is not the way to build to a third fight it is not and i can't go out and say well maybe he maybe he has a point maybe maybe it did uh, affect him because i i don't know maybe maybe his costume is 40 40 something about maybe it isn't that heavy maybe he's just exaggerating just to save face in which in turn made him make him look even worse just by saying this and and I'm not alone saying this. I think everyone unanimously will say, has said on social media at the very least, yeah, yeah, I, I'm working on bullshit on what Deontay Wilder is saying. This is absolutely dumb. And I'm not saying Deontay Wilder is wrong for thinking that, or at the very least, he's wrong for, you know, again, maybe he does believe that the Super Super Heavy, and that was the reason that he won, but that doesn't. Just because you think something, or maybe just because you believe in something, doesn't mean you should just go outright and say it. And for those, of, and, and I know there are some people that were wondering, like, why is Deontay Wilder doing, you know, interviews already? Why is he doing interviews, you know, so soon after the fight? Well, let's remember, this is, you know, Deontay Wilder doing an interview like this, or any boxer in this type of. In, uh, after such a high-profile fight, doing an interview afterwards, you know, a couple of days later, it's not the not the strangest thing in the world. It's happened in the past, and I believe Tyson Fury, uh, I actually think both Wilder and Fury held media calls or in, or small press conferences like a day or two after their first fight back in 2018. Hell, last year, la uh, you know, January 2019, you go back to Badu, the Badu Jack fight against... Marcus Brown, you all remember how horrible that eye looked, or at least, you know, above Badu Jack's eye looked. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen in a boxing fight. And then a few days later, Badu Jack's doing a, a media call, he, all hunky-dory, like, hell, he, hell, I remember, I don't remember if, I, if it was me that asked him or someone else asked him, I don't want to say it was me because... I'm not 100% sure and I don't want to take credit for something I didn't do. But at least someone in the media call was asking about it and and he was just downplaying the cut and it's like, you know, it didn't really bother me. You know, it's it just got to tough it out. It's like, it makes it seem like it, like the cut was like very minimal. It was one of the worst cuts uh, I have seen. And, you know, I, I, I could, you know, I don't want to say like, Badu Jack is, you know, Badu Jack was just doing the same thing as Deontay Wilder did, but at the very least, Badu Jack's not saying, well, I only lost because, you know, the gloves I wore, you know, they, they weren't the type of gloves that I like wearing, so uh, so that meant, and so, you know, Marcus Brown didn't do a whole lot, he didn't hurt me, it was just, I wasn't wearing the right gloves that day, 
That's why I lost to Marcus Brown. Like, do you see how ridiculous that sounds? It's so asinine. It's real dumb. And then you kind of go, and then not just, and you go from making the excuse about the costume, but you also talk about the, the other big story regarding the fight itself was, you know, the, the towel being thrown in, that essentially ended the fight that gave Tyson Fury the victory. Because, so, for those of you who didn't watch the fight or weren't paying, you know, that much attention, so Mark Breland, who is, I, I was, I've been hearing some, like, inconsistency, but he is, like, someone in Deontay Wilder's corner. He's just, he is in Deontay Wilder's corner. And the thing about that fight, and the thing about this, you know, Breland is not the head-head trainer. He's not. Uh, a lot of people may know that that JD's that who, who's Wilder's head trainer, I guess, quote unquote. Um, and Deontay Wilder and Jay did not agree with Mark throwing in the towel. And I gotta say, I don't. From Deontay Wilder's standpoint, I can understand why he disagreed with. The towel being thrown. He's a fighter. He likes, you know, fighters by nature, or at least a good portion of the fighters. They like to go out on their shields, as Deontay eloquently said in the post-fight interview. He doesn't want to be the one who basically says, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I give up. I quit. You know, some guys are willing to lay their life on the line for the sport and for our enjoyment, and that's fine. That's fine. if you you know fighters will do that. By that is in their nature to do that. Because if you go into the ring and you have and you're hesitant, or you have second thoughts, or you have any doubts whatsoever about fighting, it's not going to end well. It's just not. That's just how it. That's the that's the nature of the beast that is boxing. So from Deontay Wilder's perspective. I can understand that. But when you see other people not named Deontay Wilder criticize Mark Breland for his choice, it is... I don't think people... I think a lot of people are forgetting the last year with Maxine Dadashev. Dude was fine until late in the fight. He got hurt real bad and then... Unfortunately, days later, he revealed that he had he suffered a traumatic brain injury and he passed away. You know, he didn't necessarily die in the ring, but the injuries that he sustained in the fight, that, that's basically what did it. And when you look back at the fight, I don't care what people, I don't care what Deontay Wilder says. He looked hurt. And I mean, he looked hurt real bad. And for those of you who are thinking, who are saying, look, yeah, he looked bad, he looked hurt, but the other while they got the power, he can overcome this. He did it against Luis Ortiz. He was hurt, you know, in that first fight Wilder Luis Ortiz had, and Wilder ended up winning the fight. And to that I say, do you not rem do you remember that first fight? Because apparently you don't. Yes, he was hurt, but... At the very least, Deontay Wilder 
won a round in that fight against Luis Ortiz. And Wilder wasn't dropped, not once, but twice in that fight. And, the, you know, unlike the the first fight. like Wilder didn't get dropped once against Luis Ortiz. Fury dropped him twice in the rematch. And you can't... It, it, and Wilder was able to recover, you know, after a round or two getting hurt by Luis Ortiz in that first fight, he was able to recover. Fury showed no signs of recovery in that in the rematch. Like, once the first knockdown came, he got back up, and I will give him credit for that. He never recovered. He, at least from my eyes, he never looked like he recovered. Like, he, in, in fact, I will go out and, and then just say for a good portion of the fight post-round three, Wather was progressively worse then he got dropped a second time. So now we're already dealing with something we had never seen Deont- a situation we have never seen Deontay Wilder in, where he wasn't, wasn't just like in a competitive fight or losing some rounds to, to his opponent. He was losing every round to his opponent. And he was getting dropped not once, but twice. And Tyson Fury was looking more and more confident as the fight progressed. So now you want to tell me, well, Wilder could come back. He has the power. Yes, and I'm not taking away from Deontay Wilder's power. He absolutely does have the power to end a fight at any moment if Tyson Fury isn't careful. But are we really willing to play this woulda, coulda, shoulda with a man's life? When it's not even a year not even a year has passed since Maxine Dadashev. And I get, and I know what I want to say, look, for as much as we want fighters to be safe and for there to be no deaths in the ring, the unfortunate part is, by the nature of boxing itself, fighters, even though it sometimes may not look like it, fighters are laying their lives on the line. Every time they step into the ring. And we know that more than ever, with what we know about concussions, with what we know about CTs, with what we know about boxing. And I'm going to use this very famous example. It's not even a real example, but stick with me. You remember in Rocky IV, when Apollo Creed was fighting Ivan Drago. And Ivan Drago it, it was battering Apollo Creed. Like, he was being manhandled in a way that we had never seen before Apollo Creed. Like, sure, he was, you know, he was in a tough, he was in tough fights against Rocky Balboa, but at the very least, Apollo Creed had his moments to shine. Apollo Creed didn't have any moments to shine in this fight against Apollo Creed. And before the fight, Apollo Creed told Rocky... Well, maybe, maybe I'm misremembering. It was maybe not before the fight. But it, at some point, it was in between the... Okay, it, if I remember correctly, it was after the first round, if I'm not mistaken. Apollo Creed told Rocky, whatever you do, don't throw in the towel. Under no circumstances, don't throw in the towel. And look what happened. Rocky never threw in the towel. Or at least never threw in the towel on time. Apollo... 
But even though it was a great boxer, and could have theoretically ended the fight on a moment's notice, he wasn't doing that. He was looking worse and worse. And Ivan Drago just kept pummeling him, just kept destroying him, and he died in the ring. All because Rocky didn't throw in the towel. So now when you read Deontay Wilder's comments, and when he's saying he's not happy with the way Mark Breland talked about you know, with the with Mark Breland throwing the towel, and he kept saying, I've had conversations with my team. They are to not throw in the towel. Under any circumstances, you are not to throw in the towel. Well, I understand from a fighter's perspective of not wanting someone else to decide your fate in the ring or decide the result of a fight. I understand that. Trainer doesn't have to follow that mentality. He doesn't. A trainer's fighter, a trainer's job is to prepare their fighters for the fights and to protect them in the best way possible. No one in Deontay Wilder's corner, aside from Mark Breland, was doing that. He was the only one that was really watching out for Deontay Wilder's life. We know way too much about the sport and the dangers it has when it comes it presents when it comes to CTE, concussions, potential death in the ring. You can't tell me everything was all right when the seventh round came and Wilder was being hurt. And Wilder was still recovering. He wasn't just recovering for the second knockdown. He was still recovering for the first knockdown. And now you're telling me, you have the gall to tell me, hey, you know, he could he still had the power. He could have ended it at any time. You mean to tell me, you look, you, you can, are you seriously telling me you can look at that sixth and seventh round and say straight to my face, oh yeah, it's a, it's a foregone conclusion. Deontay Wilder is definitely going to knock out Tyson Fury. It doesn't matter when. No. No, I don't buy that bullshit. I don't, I don't buy that BS. Excuse my French. I don't buy that. Mark Breland was watching out for Deontay Wilder. And maybe, maybe Deontay Wilder does not agree with Mark Breland's decision. But you cannot fault him for, you know, for doing what he did. I commend Mark for doing so. Guy was a boxer. Guy's been in Deontay Wilder's position, you know, being a boxer, fighting for a world title, fighting a world title fight. He he knows what it's like. You not think? Like, you, you know, you not think that Mark Brillian's also not feeling good about his decision? You think he wanted to do do that in the sense that, yeah, yeah, I'll just do it. Yeah, whatever. It's no big deal. With Deontay telling his team, don't throw in the towel. Do you, the amount of mental anguish that Mark must have had when, you know, when he was deciding whether or not to throw in the towel and in the immediate aftermath. You know, I gotta wonder how, how Mark's handling all this. Because 
at no point do I have I seen Deontay Wilder say, hey man, I don't agree with the decision, but I understand why why he did it. And you know what? I appreciate him for doing the decision and watching out for me, even though I don't agree with it. You know, it, it's times like this where we sometimes forget the dangers that boxing presents. And again, you, for as much as we can try to make the sport safer, we can do whatever is, you know, you know, cutting the amount of rounds, you know, changing the way we referee fights, changing, we can change everything about boxing. But at the end of the day, it's still not, it's still not a sport where you can just come in, step into the ring, and just be totally fine afterwards, and there be no risk whatsoever. There's always going to be a risk of not just small injury of a major injury potentially life-threatening injury it could come on a moment's notice and i don't fault mark breland for making the decision that he did now deontay wilder says he's gonna exercise the rematch clause we're gonna see a third fight but i hope mark breland is still in deontay wilder's corner i really do he did nothing but watch out for his fighter. And I'm sure he's not oblivious to the fact that we had a a fight that aired, you know, that you know, that was put on an ESPN platform. And that fighter died because of injuries sustained in the ring. I'm sure he's not oblivious to that. And I sympathize with him with his decision to do that. I understand why Deontay isn't happy with his decision. Because as a fighter, you want to go out on your shield. And you want to be able to finish things on your own terms. But Deontay's got a family. And it'd be a real shame if something had happened in the ring... If no one had thrown the towel, or if Ken, referee Kenny Bayless didn't stop the fight, and Tyson Fury just kept punishing him, just attacking him, could you imagine what would happen if one punch did some serious damage, and no, and something could have been done to prevent it, and it was never done? We'd be having a completely different conversation. Hell. There'd be people calling for boxing to be banned. And, and, and I remember I was listening to ESPN Radio New York, the Michael K show. And I forgot which of the hosts um, said this, but if you had introduced boxing, if, if we had never heard of boxing today, and someone were to present the sport in 2020, there'd be no way boxing would be allowed. There'd be no way commissions and the government would even entertain the idea of boxing. Boxing's just been a thing that's been around for hundreds of years. So it's not necessarily a great thing to be having these kinds of talks. But, you know... 
one of the most famous moments in you know in the Rocky franchise was Apollo Creed dying in the ring because Rocky never threw in the towel. I am so thankful we did not get to see a repeat of that last week with Deontay Walter. And we have not and we have Mark Brillin to thank for that. So now kind of moving on to the I guess behind the scenes stuff regarding the the Wilder Fury fight. So now there's reports. The reports basically there's no I guess unanimous or I guess there's no official official number regarding the pay-per-view buy rates for this fight. But the numbers but basically everyone kept saying a lot of reports were saying 800,000 to 850,000. Definitely more than 750,000. Which you know if you go into that range 800 to 850 that's almost three times the first fight. Well, you know, a lot of people are gonna say, "Wow, it's a win-win." You know, that's a, that's a big that's, that's a big number, especially in today's pay-per-view market. Because how often do you get fights that do a million pay-per-view buys? I mean, look, Canelo, Canelo Alvarez, Canelo versus Golovkin, the two fights they barely did. A million. Like, they managed to get to a million, but not like it was doing two million or anything like that. And and I'm seeing a lot of people disappointed with that number. A lot of people disappointed with that number. And and I can understand why people are disappointed. You know, from Bob Arum doing this. It's going to do two million buys. You know, it's going to do so many buys. And... And then you have stuff, you know, Fox, the Fox and ESPN machine just going all in on this. Just no matter, just doing everything in its power to make sure this was a success. And it did, uh, did at least does a million buys. Maybe, maybe it's because my initial projections were way off. And I did, and I will glad, and I will go on the record and say, you know, when the fight was first announced, or even before the rematch was announced, was announced. If you had asked me, what would a rematch do, buy rate wise? I'd say 500, 550,000. maybe six hundred with enough. When you know, if the market is good enough. And when I saw eight hundred to eight hundred fifty thousand, I thought, well, that's you know, those are really good numbers. Like, you know, if you go to eight hundred. And you charge in the ridiculous seventy nine ninety five price. If every single pay per view was that price, uh, pay per view unit was sold at that price, and I believe there may have been slightly cheaper options, but let's be generous. Let's say eight hundred thousand buys at seventy nine ninety five. That's almost sixty four million dollars. And when you also put in. And, you know, add in the, the live gate, which was $16.916 million on 15,210 tickets sold. That's $80 million. That's almost that, That's almost $80 million. Roughly $80 million. So, that's not, a, that's not a bad number. Not a bad, bad number. But... 
it does kind of give you now the baseline of what we expect for these types of fights. Because when you look at that, I look at, because when you look at, the, the reason why people were paying so much attention to the Bay Preview High Rate, more so in this fight than any other fight I can remember in recent memory, except for maybe McGregor's fights against Manny Pacquiao and Conor McGregor. The only reason why people were so curious about the pay-per-view number, it's because it was almost a miracle seeing ESPN and Top Rank working with PBC and Fox on this. This was a joint pay-per-view. You know, these types of network partnerships, you have to understand, they are so rare. It's only happened a handful of times in the past two decades. For fights like these, it's only happened a handful of times. And the two, in the most recent, the recent examples I can think of are, you know, Vladimir Klitschko versus Anthony Joshua. That was an HBO Showtime TV thing where Showtime had, you know, had the rights to the first uh, live airing and HBO will get to Aaron on prime time on a tape delay and Pacquiao Mayweather which I what's HBO and Showtime working together on uh, you know on a pay-per-view basis but now we're in this new age and we look at in pay-per-view the pay-per-view market has changed dramatically but I still look at 800 and 850,000 I think that's a that's a that's a good number that's a good number. Now, I think a lot of people may be overestimating the power of the Fox machine, you know, plastering it this on everywhere. And, you know, and they, they put it on, they put, they've done Super Bowl commercials on it. They put it on all over Fox television. ESPN was doing a lot of work too. And they thought, that's got to elevate it to one million. That's got to do a million. You know, and again, maybe I'm looking at this way too optimistically, but I don't think that's a bad number at all. The one thing I do have to say is that I think people were a little over, you know, they were overestimating this fight. And I, you know, and I do think that, listen, they kept airing the same commercial every time now and again. And, you know, and I'm not sure how affected that, that one commercial did of like, you know, that's 15, 30 second spot. I still think if you have done the the commercial or the promo video that I believe with BT Sport that did that in the UK the one where you had Mike Tyson and it talking about the fight I guarantee you that I think the Bible would have been bigger because I because I do recommend if there's a way for you to find it I recommend watch it because it's one of the best promo videos for a boxing fight in a long, long time. By, by by an official broadcaster. One of the best I've seen in a long time. So, now you're so now we're looking back and thinking, you know, 800,000, 850,000. Where, where do we go from here? Because obviously the third fight, you know, maybe it could do a bigger number, but you can't Maybe it can do a bigger number, but you can't do the same type of promotion for the rematch in the fall as what we've had the last couple of months. Because there's no Super Bowl in the fall. There isn't. So, already, with that third fight potentially coming in late in the second half of 2020, I don't know what specific month, you know, they, they kept saying it has to take place by July, but... 
I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to negotiate the the third fight for it to happen in October. That way you can take care, uh, you know, put a lot of promotional material during the NFL broadcast, which does have an impact. It does have a positive impact on PBC's Fox cards. It really does. You know, history has shown you air fights during the NFL season, it'll do a bigger number. It'll do a better number, especially late in the regular season in the playoffs. But the one thing I take away from this is that, okay, it's 800 to 850,000. That is now the number you should expect if you try to do Terrence Crawford versus Errol Spence Jr. Because let's be honest, there's a lot of intriguing fights you can do between PBC and Top Rank. A lot of really good fights. The one fight that everyone cares about it's Terrence Crawford versus Errol Spence Jr. That is the fight that everyone wants to wants to see when it comes to top rank and PBC working together. That is the number one fight. So now you have to wonder, is this a number that PBC and top rank are comfortable with? What they spent, with everything that they have done in the, you know, all the resources they have used for promoting this fight, is at a hundred to eight hundred fifty thousand a good enough number to do this? You know, at first I would think, yeah, 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 absolutely. I would totally, you know, that that is totally a, a fine, fine number, especially again in a mark in a pay per view market where it's not as robust as it once was. You know, streaming options are there. Pirating fights is a fairly common thing. I'm not going to go out and say, you know, piracy was the reason that into a million. Because there's always going to be a lot of piracy when it comes to major events. There's always going to be piracy. This is the way technology evolves. No one wants, you know, at the end of the day, no one really wants to spend $80 on something like this. That's a lot of money, $80. I mean, hell, that's that's almost a six. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of my bi-weekly paycheck. That's almost a six. Wasted on the pay... Well, I don't want to say wasted because it's, it's kind of... It may seem like I hate it. Like I was hate watching or anything. But, but you get what I mean. You know, $80. That's a lot. And I remember back in the day when pay-per-views was actually $50. And you get the high-depth version of that pay-per-view for $60. I remember back to... I remember those days. 
You know, I, I may be 24, and I may be turning 25 in less than five weeks. But I'm still, but that, but I'm still old enough to remember those times where boxing pay-per-views were only 50, 60 bucks, not 80. So, so now the question is again, this is a number that they're comfortable with. And at first I would say, yeah. But now that I'm looking out, everyone kept talking about how they had seven figures at the bare minimum, seven figures as their as their projections. Now I'm not so sure that's a good enough number if you're Fox or ESPN. To use so many resources. And again, Super Bowl ads were airing up for this fight. And those don't come cheap. You know, a 30-second spot in the Super Bowl costs millions and millions of dollars. So, those resources, all that they have spent on this fight, a million sounds like a really, really nice number. 800,000 doesn't. It's not that, that nice of a number. Not as good as a million. So, now I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, if if there's a chance that Fox and Top Rank and ESPN look at this and it's like this is unacceptable, this 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 feels like a failure. There's a chance any of them are thinking that. I really don't see how we can see Errol Spencer's Terrence Crawford become a reality. It's hard. It's hard to look at. All that they have done, and to only get eight hundred thousand to eight hundred fifty thousand, it. I wouldn't be surprised if they think that this was a gigantic, not maybe not a gigantic waste of time, but this was not the fruitful endeavor that they initially thought. And again, I still think that number is good, but it's not as good as that as what Bob Arum wanted. Not as good as maybe what Fox or ESPN wanted. If you do the third fight. If you ask me, I don't think it does 800,000. I think it does maybe 650,000, 700,000 because the promotional part of it won't be as robust as the first one just because there is no Super Bowl to air in the summer or in the fall. But, and also just the fact that the way Tyson Fury dominated that fight. I mean, do people really want to see a, a third fight like that? You know, you know, it... it I'm sure there's a lot of people that would be very excited to see a third fight, but not as many people will tune in, in my opinion, because of how well Tyson Fury did and how bad Deontay Wilder looked. I mean, and that's coming after two fights after, you know, we're 19 and a half rounds into this rivalry. And a lot of people look at those 19 and a half rounds and they think Deontay Wilder maybe at best won four rounds. Yes, he does have the power to end this fight on a moment's notice. But, look at this fight, and I'm just now thinking, eh, I don't know. You know, if 800,000 was the, the best it could do, and our rematch that does not have the same, you know, level of steam and momentum that the second fight had. I don't know. That's um, as far as what it means for Terrence Crawford versus Earl Spence Jr., which is the fight top rank at BBC could make between the two of them. I don't know. Uh, 
as much as I would love to see it. Now I'm feeling a little trepidatious. I'm not sure I fully, fully like my chances of seeing that fight take place this month, uh, this year, or even next year. And I mentioned this earlier in the show, but now it's time we actually get to talking about it. So this weekend, you know, we're, I'm, we're recording this on February 27th, and late February 27th, and, and this is premiering, and this was released on February 28th. On February 29th, we have what I consider to be one of the best boxing cards of 2020 so far that we know of. This is one of the best cards. Mikey Garcia versus Jesse Vargas. It's There's no title assist. There's no world title assist. It's not a title eliminator. When you look at the welterweight division, you look at this fight in particular, this is a very interesting fight between Mikey and Jesse Vargas. There's a lot of subplots a lot of things at play here when it comes to both fighters. You know, Mikey Garcia, we haven't seen him in almost a year. And he looked bad against Errol Spence Jr. He, he looked awful. You know, he looked like he didn't belong in the welterweight division. After seeing that, I kind of agree. I do, I do agree. Maybe, you know, does this mean I'm writing on Mikey Garcia's chances? Um, I'm not, not necessarily, but... I don't see Mikey becoming a world champion at Walterweight. At the very least, not going up against any of the current crop of champions, Terrence Crawford, Aerosmith Jr., or Manny Pacquiao. But, it is very interesting to see the dynamics of this Mikey Garcia The Zone partnership. Because it's a one-fight deal with, I believe, Eddie Hearn having the ability to match, uh, the, or at least, Eddie Hearn having the right to match any offer presented to Mikey after this fight. And the end goal for this fight is, uh, for for this partnership, is getting Mikey Garcia a title fight. So that would mean Pat Manny Pacquiao. And you look at this whole thing, and I'm thinking to myself, that's all well and good, but how do you, but when Mikey signed with the zone, his, his goal for a year for more than a year, for almost two years, has been going up to welterweight and winning a title there. You look at this fight, and you look at Mikey Garcia, the current landscape, I just don't see, first of all, how Mikey can beat any of the current champs, and two, let alone actually make a fight. Actually make a fight with any of the champions, because... Terrence Crawford was top rank, and Manny and Errol are with PBC. Now, the one thing that should be mentioned is that Manny Pacquiao did sign, I believe, with the management agency that represents Conor McGregor. And there's been some, some hearsay through the great prize saying that you know Manny Pacquiao either has one fight left on his PBC deal, or you know he could, or theoretically he could go anywhere. It's it's all nothing concrete per se, but there is a lot, a lot of a lot of intrigue as to what the future of Mikey Garcia is. And you look at a guy like Jesse Vargas, and I think Jesse Vargas presents a lot of problems for Mikey Garcia. The, the biggest of them all is not necessarily the size difference per se. 
But, I mean, you look at Mikey Garcia, who, you know, he's only five foot six, and Jesse Vargas is five foot eleven. There is the size issue, but there's also the, it's not just the size difference, it's also Mikey Garcia's size. And we we saw that in the Earl Spence fight. Physically, he just can't keep up with him. Maybe skill swipe. Maybe if both guys were the same stature, the same weight, and we're just judging based on boxing ability alone, maybe Mike Garcia could win that fight. Maybe. But when you factor in the size, the physical, the you know the increase in physical competition and the, the level of ability and size as welterweight division compared to lightweight or junior welterweight, it's night and day. And Mikey Garcia was coming into the fight already, I mean, let's be honest, he was kind of an undersized junior welterweight, so now you're telling me he's going to go up a, a weight class above that? It's hard to really take Mikey seriously as a true contender when you come out and look how you looked against Errol Spence Jr. And Jesse Vargas is a very good, very good boxer. Never mind what you may think about Jesse Vargas and the draw against Thomas DeLorman and against Adrian Broner. Uh, You know, let's be honest. Jesse Vargas, former world champion, his only losses were Manny Pacquiao and Timothy Bradley Jr. That's a hell of a, you know, if you were to lose to... If your only pro losses were to two guys, Pacquiao and Tim Bradley are pretty damn good losses, if you ask me. And, you know, you look at Jesse Vargas, I do wonder how he's going to look at 147 pounds back. Because if you remember, the whole story with last year, with 2019, with Jesse Vargas, that was, the whole story was, uh, he wanted to fight Jaime Munguia for the WBO junior world junior middleweight title. That never happened. The most the most Jesse Vargas had was a a fight against Humberto Soto, which it wasn't even it, it was even it wasn't even a proper 154 pound fight. It was at a catchweight, like 150 and a half pounds. So obviously, it's been a while since we last saw Jesse Vargas as a proper welterweight. But if you put him up up against the current crop of welterweights, I'd say after maybe the top six or seven welterweights, I would I would not be willing to bet against Jesse Vargas against any welterweight out there aside from the top six, seven, eight guys out there. That's how good Jesse Vargas is. And this, again, this is a hell of a welterweight division that we got here, ladies and gentlemen. This is a hell of a division that we got at the top. And Jesse Vargas has earned at least my respect as far as being able to uh, show that he he has earned my respect in his ability as a welterweight. Let me just say it like that. Mikey Garcia, skills-wise, I think is a slightly better boxer than Jesse Vargas. But that size, the size is the main issue, and that's and that's always gonna follow him when wherever he goes at, at Walter Wood. That's always gonna be an issue. So if Mikey Garcia can't overcome Jesse Vargas, I'm sorry, you can't. Real, you 
Walter was too much. You know, for as great of a pound for pound boxer Mike Garcia was before the Earl Spence Jr. fight, there had to be a point where Mikey, Mikey's size is going to hurt him. It's going to be a detriment. And we saw that in the Earl Spence Jr. fight. And if it becomes a problem against Jesse Vargas, I'm sorry, I don't see Mikey Garcia ever winning a title unless it's again like a, like a, a not. I, like, one of the champions vacates their belt or for whatever reason and Mike Garcia goes against, like, the number 30 guy in the world at welterweight and he just happens to be highly ranked by a sanctioned body. That's the only way I can see Mikey winning. So, I look at this fight. It's very interesting. I, I, I don't want to put in a prediction. This is such a really interesting fight. Uh, I'm just going to be very, very excited to watch this fight. And the other card is also phenomenal, in my opinion. You got... Calia Feigen's Chocolatito Gonzalez for the WBA Super Flyweight title. That's a hell of a fight. I think a lot of people are maybe sleeping on Calia Fai, or maybe they're just not that interested in Calia Fai to begin with because his run as the WBA champion has been very lackluster. Even, even you know, and for as much as I don't like to criticize guys or anything like that, I think that's a hell of a fight. As far as I think of Chocolatito's abilities at this stage of his career. He may be only 32 years old, but he has been fighting. He's been fighting since 2005. He's been fighting since he was a teenager. And, you know, he is, he may be 32, but he is an old 32. He's been through some, through a lot of wars. He's fought against so many big names throughout his career. I mean, hell, a decade ago, you know, almost a decade, he's been fighting guys like, what, like Juan Francisco Estrada, and fighting guys like Akira Yagashi, and Brian Valori, and McWilliams Roy. Like, this has been five years, this is not something he's been, these are not names he's been fighting, like, a year or two ago, he's been fighting these guys for, these, these level of guys for almost a decade. And he has been able to get on this win streak, go up against Moises Fuentes and Diomel Diocos uh, the last couple of years after the two losses to Shurisiketsu or Rumbisai. But I wonder what... This is a very interesting fight because I'm really excited to see how Chocolatito looks. You know, you can't look at his last two fights. Even though they were TKO victories, you can't look at those two fights and be your gauge as to how we'll do it against Caliophy. Because at the end of the day, what's gonna, you know, this fight will properly tell us where this version of Chocolatito looks like. Because again, we've never, you know, say what you will up with the first fight against Sorum Visai. It's a phenomenal fight. I thought Chocolatito won that fight. But when you look at that rematch in 2017... I mean, I just saw, I look at Chocolatito, and I could tell mentally he has not recovered from that loss to Sorum Visai. And it bit him in the ass so hard, and he would just, he looked like a shell of his former self. And even though he looked good in his last couple of fights, since the two losses, I can't confidently say he's going to beat Calvi Fai. I mean, Calgify 
is one of the best super flyweights in the world. And it really depends on how Chocolatito's mindset is heading into this fight. Because at his best, I think he is the best super fly. I, I think he, he's one of the three best super flyweights in the world. I think he is just a smidge below Estrada and Sorum Visay. It's a smidge below the two of them. And even then, it's, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be confident betting against Chocolatito in those cases. But right now, but we, but we just don't know don't, don't know that yet. And Kalia Fai, as great as, you know, he's a solid, solid fighter. Yeah, he also hasn't been tested. So there's a lot of interesting pieces moving around between those two fighters. And, and I'm very excited to see this fight. I just think, you know, I'm going to say Chocolatito wins this fight. But I think it will be much closer than a lot of people will anticipate. I think it'll be fun. I think it'll be great seeing Chocolatito potentially win a title again. I, you know, Chocolatito being at the top of the division or near the top of the division of wherever he's fighting at, I think it's good for the sport. Chocolatito is an exciting fighter and he's... Really one of the best fighters of this past decade. I really, really think that the sport is better off with Chocolatito doing well. And then you got Julio Cesar Martinez against Jay Harris, who is one of the, you know, for the WBC flyweight title. This is a very, a very, very good fight. I think Jay Harris is someone maybe that I don't want to say he's being overlooked, but he is certainly someone who is capable of... Pulling off the upset. I don't feel confident saying that. But it, there is a chance. You know. Martinez. Is so strong. His. You know. Offensively. Dude is phenomenal. His. His power. Is ridiculous. I mean. He, that was evident. In the fight against Charlie Edwards. And in the fight against Christopher Rosales. Which by the way. I do recommend watching that fight. The fight against Christopher Rosales. From last December. Thought that that was a fun fight. But. You can even tell that you can trade with Julio Cesar Martinez, but if you don't have the ability and you don't have the chin to keep up with Martinez's strength and his power, it's pretty much game over, to be honest with you. And Martinez has, you know, I don't think there's a better looking flyweight today. If you ask me, I don't think there's a better looking flyweight boxer uh, today than Julio Cesar Martinez. I'm excluding Kosei Tanaka because he's not flyweight anymore. He's fight. He's gonna fight a super flyweight. That's why he vacated his WBO flyweight title. And I would put Martinez up against guys like Artem Delakian, Moruti Antolane, Junto Nakatani, anybody at 112 pounds. Do I? I, I think Martinez. I think I. I can see Martinez winning this fight by mid, you know, in the middle rounds, seventh, eighth round. I could see Martinez pulling off a TKO victory. Jake Harris is certainly skillful enough to maybe go to distance, but I just have not, I'm not convinced, you know, Harris has the chin and, you know, the ability to be able to withstand this power. Not just my opinion. And then you look at the rest of the undercard. Joseph Parker against Shondell Terrell Winters. You know, Parker... You know, the fight itself is not that great, good, but it's Joseph Parker, former WBO heavyweight champion, and he 
could potentially factor in into the va the potentially vacant WBO uh, heavyweight title. Israel Madrimov, fifth pro fight already in a WBA title eliminator, 154 pounds against Charlie Navarro. That's going to be good. Jesse Rodriguez versus uh, Marcos Sustaita, Diego Pacheco, Alex Espino, both really, really good prospects. There's a lot of good stuff here. I, I got to say, I'm really, really excited about this card on The Zone on February 29th, and I'm very excited uh, to watch that. I think this will be one of the best cards of the year. Maybe even the best boxing card so far in this in these two months in 2020. So I asked on social media if any of you guys, listeners, have any questions that you want me to ask, uh, want me to answer on the show. And a few of you did actually. You know, so I appreciate you guys uh, tweeting at me at Carlos Toro three six zero. That's C A R L O S T R T O R O three six zero on Twitter. And we're gonna go through these real quick. Uh, at official Dermo, he asks, "How high do you think Richardson Hitchens' ceiling is on the eve of his Showbox appearance?" Well, I'm recording. Well, this is premiering on the day of his Showbox appearance on February 29th. But uh, I like Richardson Hitchens. I think Richardson Hitchens. He is in that crop of Mayweather Promotions prospects that Floyd has signed. Floyd and Leonard Ellerby signed that has a lot of a lot of upside. You know, you could put him up with uh, Rolando Romero, who we saw uh, last week. We There's a lot of guys that could potentially do really, really well. But at this point, there's still prospects. And I do think that they still need a little bit more seasoning. I do like the fact that Richardson Hitchens is not even a dozen fights into his pro career. And he's already well entrenched into 10 rounds. This is going to be his second uh, scheduled 10-rounder. And he's been moving up real quick. He's only He only needed three fights at four rounds to before he moved up. Then he needed a few more round, uh, a few more fights to get to that point. Then he started fighting eight-rounders. And he only needed two eight-rounders to then move up to 10-rounders. I like what I see. I don't know... I'm still not entirely convinced he's going to be future world champion, but especially with the way this division, the 140 pounds is shaping up, or 147 pounds is shaping up. But I do like what I see. He's only 22 years old. There's, you know, forget what guys like Gervonta Davis and David Benavides have been able to do at such a young age. Forget them. There is. A lot of time left to properly season Richardson Hitchens. He's still got, you know, he's not entering a physical prime for a few more years. So there's no reason to rush a guy like uh, Hitchens into fighting against world beaters. I would prefer him to, you know, continue to develop as a boxer. He's only 22 years old. I think he's going to... I think he has a very, very bright future. I think he's going to have a lot of TB fights, and I think a lot of people are going to be impressed with him. Doesn't necessarily, he hasn't shown me he has a whole ton of power, but I think he does have some pop in his hands. It's just a matter of seeing how he looks against bigger competition. His fight against Nicholas DeLomba tonight, I don't think it's going to be the fight that's going to tell me whether or not he's going to be a future world champion. But I do think it is a step in the right di- uh, direction in slowly giving Richardson Hitchens some big fights. 
Henry Vernice on Twitter has two questions. The first one is, what future does Charles Martin have? He seemed to be a few levels lower than the top guys. I agree. You know, I agree that he is a couple of steps below the elite at heavyweight. And let's be honest, you know, the, the IBF title that he held for, what, two months, it's it's almost not even fair to the other proper world champions to call Charles Martin a world champion. Because that was the belt that Tyson Fury was stripped of, and he wasn't really, and he didn't fight a top three guy, a top three heavyweight to win that belt. It's, I never was a fan of Charles Martin, I'll be the first to say that. He looked good against Gerald Washington, and the fact that he knocked the dude, he knocked Washington out. But prior to that, the fight that he had with Washington was an absolute, was a near all-time stinker. I don't see Charles Martin fighting for a heavyweight title, even if he won this title eliminator. He's, you know, it's an IBF heavyweight title eliminator, which means Kurapulev is still the mandatory challenger, and the IBF's not gonna pursue. Martin against the winner, the against the IBF title holder for long, long time, maybe twenty twenty one at the earliest. I just don't see Charles Martin becoming a world champion again. I don't see him winning a a, a title, a top title at this point in time. Could the IBF in the meantime make an interim title? Sure, they've done that in the past, and maybe Charles Martin could win that. But I still wouldn't call him a world champion if it comes to that point. The other question is, do you think a loss in the rubber match ends Wilder's career? I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think it does. And listen, we're, I think we've gotten to the point where we can't say a fighter's career is done after a couple of losses. Now, if you're asking if he's going to retire or he should retire, I don't think so. I mean, dude can still command seven-figure purses even if he loses badly. Uh, even if he loses in the same manner as he did in the second fight in the when the two meet again, I still, Wilder's still going to get seven-figure purses uh, for the next couple of years at the very least. Now, as far as him winning a world title, if he loses to Tyson Fury, Here's how I actually. Here's how we would actually get Deontay Wilder back on track. The loses to Tyson Fury, I would have Wilder go up against Charles Martin, make that a heavyweight title eliminator for the IBF belt. And what you can do is, if Wilder beats Charles Martin, you know what that means. It means he could potentially he could be the mandatory challenger to Anthony Joshua, and that's how you kind of get the ball rolling. Now, granted. Joshua vs. Wilder is nowhere near as appealing as it once was, and probably never will be again, thanks to both guys losing fights badly. But that is still possible, and it's still a fairly big fight. But it is a win-win if you go this route. Here's why. Here's a win-win for Wilder. If Wilder wins that fight and becomes a manager challenger for the IPF title, the IPF will force will enforce Joshua vs. Wilder. Now, granted... You're going to have to make some concessions because Joshua's going to be holding the belts in this scenario. And Wilder's all just coming off of the loss against Tyson Fury. And then, you know, you beat Charles Martin, but doesn't really give you a whole lot of leverage. So Joshua's team has the leverage. If, if you can make the fight, perfect. Big money fight for Deontay Wilder again. But if 
doesn't. Who's to say the IBF wouldn't say, you couldn't make that fight happen, sir. You're going to have to strip you of the title, Anthony. They've done that in the past before. They have stripped Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin in the past for not fighting Sergei Derevianchenko. So Anthony Joshua is not above those two when it comes to keeping the IBF belt if he doesn't comply with a mandatory order to fight Deontay, uh, Deontay Wilder in this hypothetical scenario. So now that frees up the IBF belt and Deontay Wilder could fight someone else. And I'm pretty sure unless the Titan Fury or Dillian White or Anthony Joshua I would go far to say Deontay Wilder would be a prohibitive favorite against anybody. And, jo- and Wilder could win the IBF title and become the world champion again. So there is... So because of the nature of boxing and the belts and because there are so many belts and the politics and everything, no, I don't think this fight... I, I don't think losing to Wilder a, third, uh, a second time uh, uh, ends his career in general and as a world uh, as a world-class fighter. I don't think... I don't think it does. Uh, that's my opinion. At Hey Hey It's Matt on Twitter asks, who do you view as the next match for Bud Crawford? That's a good question. And the answer might not be good. So, the way it looks like, it's looking like it's going to be Terrence Crawford versus Kelbrook. That is the, that, it's not set in stone, but that is the plan that Top Rank is going for. And that's not a great fight. Yeah. Well, okay. It's it's an okay fight. It's a good fight. It's not a fantastic fight for Terence Crawford. It doesn't really move the needle a whole lot. It moves the needle about as much, maybe just a little bit more than Terence Crawford versus Amir Khan. I don't see how this fight really is a legacy fight for Terence Crawford. It isn't. In and I hate to say it because Terence Crawford's run as welterweight, and again, I do think Terence Crawford is arguably the best welterweight in the world. But you look at the resume, if you look at Crawford's best wins, and you compare that to the other two title holders at 147 pounds, Manny Pacquiao and Errol Smith Jr., Terence Crawford comes in dead last in that contest. Errol Spence Jr.'s best win at welterweight is... Sean Porter, a phenomenal fight. And Manny Pacquiao, his best welterweight win in this current title run is Keith Thurman. I think those two wins trump, you know, Terrence Crawford's win against Amir Khan. And we're saying the best win, I mean, in terms of name, in terms of like the biggest name you can find. Now, there is some discussion about a potential Manny Pacquiao versus Terrence Crawford fight. I would not hold my breath for that fight. I mean, look, I love it. I, I would love to see that fight, but they couldn't do that fight when they were both with top rank. And, you know, I'm not, I don't have anything that leaves me to believe it's going to happen it may be a fight that they can talk about and they can negotiate or explore, but if I were actually putting pen to paper, I just don't see it. It's it could be it, it might end up being Terence Crawford uh, versus Kelbrook. I don't like that, but if there is a way to get a new opponent, who's to say Mikey Garcia, if he looks good against Jesse Vargas? 
Who's to say Mikey Garcia versus Terrence Crawford isn't something that can be explored? Now, granted, granted, I am aware of the bad blood between Mikey Garcia and Bob Aaron and, and Top Rank. But last year, Mikey Garcia, it almost seemed like he was starting to be open to the idea of maybe doing a one fight thing. If, if, with the, if the fight is right, if the fight is right, Mikey would be willing to to talk to Bob about it. And let's, be, and let's remember, Eddie Hearn and Bob Aaron have worked together in the past to, to make big fights. They've done that in the past. You know, they've had they've had Jose Ramirez go to the zone to fight Maurice Hooker. They've had Maurice Hooker go to ESPN to fight Alex Elcedo. They've it's and they've had oh and they've had um Amir Khan and Terrence Crawford. So this wouldn't even be the first time they've done that with Terrence Crawford. So and Mikey wants a welterweight title shot badly. He wants to win a world title at 147 pounds and become a five division champion. If you can't get the fight against Manny Pacquiao, you have to. The literally the only other option out there is Terence Crawford. I don't think it's gonna happen, but there is there, it, it a scenario to make that fight happen does exist. Hypothetically, it is possible. I just don't see it happening. I see. They'll have Terrence Crawford fight, you know, if he ends up fighting Kell Brook, it's, it's whatever. It's not not the best thing out there, but, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, going down to WBO rankings at welterweight, it's not that great. And the reason why I say Mike, you know, Mike Garcia, if he beats Jesse Vargas, I mean, Jesse Vargas ranked number four. And that is possible. You know, looking down the WBO rankings, three names come up that I think are really, really good. Virgil Ortiz Jr., David Avanesian, and Jerome Boots Ennis. I think those three fights, I think those are great fights. I think those are very, very good fights for Tennis Crawford. Even Jesse Vargas. If Jesse beats Mikey Garcia, that could also happen. So... I'm not, I'm not even counting potential PBC fights because that there's so much that needs to happen for Crawford to fight PBC welterweights, top PBC welterweights. That I just, unless we see something concrete, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. So that's why I'm looking at other alternate, other avenues. Boots and is a great prospect, maybe the best welterweight prospect today. And hell, you can make a case that Drawn Ennis already graduated from prospect status. I I can hear that argument too. Drawn Ennis is one of the best welterweights in the world. Arguably. Arguably a top 20 guy. Top 15 guy already. David Avenisian has been looking really, really good as the European champion. And Virgil Ortiz Jr., a hell of a contender for Golden Boy promotions. So there's a lot that you can work with within the confines of the WBO rankings without having to resort to BBC. So that about wraps it up for this edition of the Fightful Boxing Podcast. Again, thanks to you so much for tuning in. I really, really do appreciate you guys tuning in. 
week in and week out or whenever I do live post-show podcast. Do appreciate it. If you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to hit that thumbs up button. Subscribe to our Fightful MMA Unboxing YouTube channel. Leave a comment. If you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to leave us a rating, a review. We really do appreciate that. And if you want to read more about Fightful, head on over to Fightful.com for all the latest in wrestling, MMA, and boxing. Until then, Carl Storrow of the Fightful Boxing Podcast, signing out. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.